0: and I would like to thank y'all for your prayers for our trip to California. Um, we can testify that it was a real vacation, blessed, encouraging, and lots of fun. And it is a special blessing to be able to come home without dread. To this body of believers that we are knit together with. Also, knowing that you had a pretty good young preacher here the last two weeks, especially, um, I'm listening to those messages. Wow, that's about all I can say. And those of you that are enjoying this Sunday school class, Pilgrim's Progress, led by Derek Thomas. Marty and I went to church with my daughter and son in law, and the pastor was on vacation himself in Colorado, and up to the pulpit walked Derek Thomas. You had him on film that morning, and then he somehow got to California. He was on vacation, actually, and said it was a joy to fill in there. Let's catch up a little bit with 1 Samuel 26. It's been uh, several Sundays since we've been in this chapter. Chapters 24, 25, and 26 comprise a unit of of 1 Samuel, in which we see incident after incident of David having to learn to trust the Lord and wait for his promise from God to see David installed as the next king. And while David waits, he's being hunted by King Saul and his men. We can remember chapter 24 by recalling the robe when David spares Saul's life in a cave and uses a corner of Saul's robe that he had secretly cut off to prove to Saul just how close to death Saul actually had come. And we can remember chapter 25 by recalling a feast when David set out to exact his own vengeance "...upon a rich man named Nabal and his entire household, but was restrained from doing that by the wife of that man, Abigail, who by her words and actions had been used by God to keep David from grievous sin, God then surprised everyone by taking his own vengeance upon Nabal, After Nabal had been cluelessly glorying in his own riches and depravity at this exorbitant feast. Feast might be a little lame way to describe what that actually was. We can remember chapter 26 because the action centers around Saul's spear. Saul's spear. We'll see David once again sparing Saul's life. And this time from being taken by Saul's own spear in David's or Abishai's hand. So what's God doing in this tough time of trials and waiting? We know it's good reading. It's a great story. But the point is, what is God doing in and through all this? Well, the simple way to explain this is to remember this, that he is preparing He is sanctifying, which means setting apart for his service, and he's working out his redemptive plan. In chapter 26, David, who is the anointed king, but not yet actually the king, receives the Lord's assurance that the kingdom will certainly be his. This assurance flows from the Lord Out of David's faith in the Lord. Now, I'm going to be saying that or try to remember to say that several times this morning because it's loaded. This assurance that David has, that we'll see here in this chapter, flows from God out of David's faith in this great God. That's how assurance works, in case you have questions. This chapter requires, then, that we patiently, that we expectantly, and that we faithfully consider the following. This is a pretty good list, but this is kind of a way to look at the big picture. The gravity of the life and death struggle that David was in. We can't forget this. His life is on the line constantly as he waits for the Lord to accomplish and make it flow, the, the promise that he had, where he would be actually king. So That's a lot going on, but we can't forget the gravity of David's situation. We also need to consider the patience and really the audacity of David as he sneaks into Saul's encampment here in this chapter 26, an encampment of 3,000 soldiers. And we go, whoa. Yeah, David shows patience in this and audacity. But all that's rooted in his faith. We also need to consider the recognition of David. He sees that even though he's not yet on the throne, David sees and understands that Saul has been made powerless by the Lord. That's encouragement. He knows he has a specific promise from God that he will be the king. And Saul's trying to kill him. So, put that together. One and one does not equal two here, it equals three. This gives David a recognition of how great God is, and that feeds and cultivates his faith and makes him consider all the ramifications of his actions. We also need to consider, as we'll see in this chapter, the rest of chapter 26, the distress, the utter distress that David feels but it's different. It's not the stress of being under the threat of Saul. Not at all. We're going to see it's a completely kind, of, a completely different kind of distress. And lastly, we need to consider the hope of David that it's not in Saul, and that Saul will change. Or suddenly would highly esteem him and treat him with respect and kind of slide over and let him take his place. That's not what his hope is in. In other words, David's hope is not in his circumstances that they will change and all of a sudden everything will be hunky dory. His hope is in the Lord alone who David knows. Has him in his hands. There's a big difference between that. If you're able, would you please stand? I'm going to read 1 Samuel 26, verses 1 through 25. In other words, I'm going to read chapter 26. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is not David hiding himself on the the hill of Hekilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner and the son of Nur, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said, to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeruah. Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul, sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not have to strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy Saul, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed? and be guiltless. And David said, "As the Lord lives, the Lord will the Lord will strike Saul, or his day will come to die, or he'll go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put up my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go." So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head And they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your lord, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Well, Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth, away from the presence of the Lord, for the King of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly, And have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, So may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Did you like the story? Well, the last time we were in this chapter, several weeks ago, we looked at the first 12 verses. And we considered the grave situation that David was in. And we also looked at the patience and the boldness that had been cultivated in David by the faith that David had in the Lord. You notice there I said boldness instead of audacity. Audacity is what it looks like to everybody, but we know it was really boldness based on faith, which I guess to everybody looks kind of audacious. Grave situation or not, David and Abishai pulled off an exploit for the ages. But David was keenly aware, as you noticed as we read this, that it was the Lord who was doing this, through him. Saul's destiny is in the Lord's hands, not in David's hands. And David knows that. David has learned that the Lord can be trusted to handle, now, here we're going to throw some context in here. David has learned that the Lord can be trusted to handle both fools like Nabal, and oppressors like Saul, when such matters are left in his hands. We pick up this account now in verses 13 and 6 through 16 first, and in this section we see the recognition of David that even though he's not yet on the throne, that Saul has been made powerless by the Lord, and that is Wouldn't you be encouraged? That is encouraging. In other words, David can actually receive this encouragement of the Lord because he is already trusting God. If he'd been grumbling and despairing and feeling sorry for himself, like, and probably most of you, he wouldn't have been able to experience Either the patience to wait on the Lord's timing concerning Saul, or the boldness to pull off this crazy stunt with Abishai. That's where most of us would fall. I would venture to say every one of us. As David and Abishai snuck into that camp, they looked around and they knew something was weird. Something was not quite normal. And instead of saying, Wow, what great luck we're having. What did they know? They knew that these soldiers were not sleeping normally, including the king and his commander of the army. But they also knew that the Lord had intervened to cause this deep sleep to fall on all of them. They saw God's hand in the moment. How many times do we miss seeing God's hand in the moment because we don't trust him enough to see him working? We get fearful of everything and anything. We should fear Him in the sense of reverence, respect, recognizing how glorious He is, how majestic He is, how big He is, how He can do anything. And we are so easily shaking in our boots. And sometimes... Over the silliest things imaginable. We all have these things going on. Remember, one lesson of faith I had in college was I was asked to do this um, teaching section session with about 500 college students. I don't know, some of you may remember something called Explo 72 were college students all over america gathered at the cotton ball yeah i was one of those weird people that showed up with some friends and they they asked me and i was going what in the world are y'all doing but you know it was one of those things i remember standing up behind a podium that was skinnier than this and i got as close as i could because i god Only you, I didn't plan this. I didn't ask to do this. I mean, I've got to do it, um, and I want to do it for your glory, so here we go. And I was thinking that, and the words started coming out a little bit like this, but you should have seen my knees. And that was in the days when jeans like today were a little skinnier. And if anybody would have seen that, I mean, it would have been like this. This down there ever felt like that yes everybody has but to step out and trust i found out something that day that god was faithful and as i concentrated on who he was and tried to communicate that all of a sudden i wasn't concerned about me anymore It, it was it was a wonderful wonderful experience that god gives us to to realize that hey he's We don't feel like he's there. We don't see that he's there. But, man, is he there? Well, David knew this. And, you know, verse 12 actually tells us that the Lord had put these guys to sleep in an abnormal way for human beings to sleep. Now, we read some of this and we go, all right, I'm claiming this one. Well, this doesn't mean that if you get into a serious scrape with some enemy that you can demand that God make everyone fall asleep so that you can get out of the mess. And I hope we understand that. You can call on great power. You can say, hey, you did this one time. Can you do it again? But you can't demand it. The point here is, yeah, God could do that. But the point here is that for David and Abishai, the message is, that God has made Saul powerless. Not so they could get the glory. Look what we did. Anybody else ever sneak into an enemy camp with 3,000 people, steal the king's spear and his water jug and then climb a mountain and go, hey, what's wrong with you guys? You just let me sneak into your camp. You all are idiots. wasn't for David's glory. He knew that God had done this, had allowed him to do this, For a special kind of humbling encouragement for him and his men. Since God is allowing Saul to continue to pursue David, it's encouraging to realize in this particular way then that God's got it, that Saul can't hurt him. Which means David's time to rule on the throne will come. And it's with this encouragement that David proceeds to reveal then, as we saw, to Saul and Abner and everyone within earshot, which means who? Can you, Y'all can picture this, right? 3,000 guys are camped on this side. There's some little ravine. They're kind of on a hill over here. But this hill over here where David is is higher, and he can see into the camp. That's how he knew where Saul was sleeping. So he goes over here, and he's yelling out across this space. Every man in this army could hear it. How vulnerable was this army of Saul's? How would you answer that? As vulnerable as God wanted them to be. And David, that's how he's operating. If God desires to display his power and his strength, no army or power on earth can stand in his way or even before him. And where we get in trouble is we demand God to demand to dis- display his power and glory the way we want it. So when he doesn't do this, every situation, we whine, we cry, we say, we're not going to follow you anymore, and we do whatever. But it's God is the one who decides when and how. No one can keep God from carrying out his redemptive plan to send the Savior, which is the underlying message of the whole Old Testament. And we see it happen in extraordinary circumstances over and over and over again. The line that led up to Jesus that we see written in Matthew and Luke and all through the Old Testament as we learn the people, the clan, the family, and we hear the prophecy and read. This is where Jesus is coming from. Those people were under threat and attack so many times in so many different ways. And it always looked like, uh-oh, that's the end. Well, Satan sure thought so. But God delivered every time to preserve his word so that his son could could come and be the Savior exactly as it was written in his word. That is is what's so encouraging. Because the Savior is the one God has ordained to come from the line of, It's so good of God to explain for us the reality of the conflict that we do have in this world, isn't it? With the world and the flesh and the devil, so many people think that the best way to tell people about the Lord is to paint this picture that if you just pray this prayer, then everything will be great. It'll be smooth sailing all the way. And you'll have everything you ever wanted. And that's how they present what they think is the gospel. But that is not the gospel. And if you prayed some prayer in your youth or at some campfire where you threw a pine cone in to prove it, and you were told that you can get to know God this way and he will give you everything you want, bless you, your family, your work, your future, and that's the basis, that's not the gospel. In our next section here in verses 17 through 20, we find out that along with genuine faith, also come times of feeling and having to deal with great distress. But the kind of stress David describes may surprise you. And man, did this surprise me. This is this, I prepared this sermon before we left on vacation. And it literally blew me away. So I went on vacation with this picture in my head. And I'm so glad I did. Let's look at this. Do you see it already? Or is this going to surprise you too? When Saul recognizes David's voice calling out to him in Abner, Saul asks if it's David. And David confirms that it's him. And he asks Saul a direct question. In verses 18 and 19, the last part of 18 and the first part of 19, he says, Saul says, no, David says, excuse me, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? David says, what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. And then David continues this hilltop conversation with Saul by providing two possibilities for why Saul was pursuing him. The first possibility is that he, David, had sinned some way, and the Lord was inciting or stirring up the king, King Saul, to pursue him because of David's sin. And David says, Well, if that's true, then I'm willing to offer a sacrifice for atonement. The second possibility David puts forth is that evil men had caused Saul's hostility to him. And if so, he says, then these men should be judged. Catch that? Okay. But then David uses this declaration to Saul to express his greatest distress. And God stuck this in this passage right here to blow us away and to convict us and to make us see what is so important that we always kind of denigrate and say, oh, it's not that big a deal. What causes David more grief than anything else in his life? Verse 19. But if it is men who have caused you to pursue me, is what he's saying, may they be cursed or judged before the Lord. Because. Because why? Because they have driven me out this day that I said, Have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Where was David? Where was he with his men? He was out in the wilderness, hiding from the king who was trying to kill him. What could he not do? Well, he couldn't go to the restaurant. He didn't have his own roof. He didn't have a bed. There was no women there. There was no singing, really. What did he miss? The most severe grief for David was being cut off from the public worship of God Almighty. Does that rock your boat? It should. Why? Because fleeing from Saul made it impossible to take part in public worship with God's people. Do we have a problem? Yeah. We take this for granted. It's no big deal. You know, most of us in here know something of what it's like not to be able to to gather on a regular basis with our brothers and sisters in Christ to worship the Lord. We know something about this. Extended sickness, being homebound, having to move to a new place, being caught in a church split or dissolution, or the more serious nature of those Christians in the armed forces, for example, who are isolated or under siege or captured, or those on the mission field, who know only a handful, a handful of other Christians in their whole country. And they have to leave, or they're kept from gathering in many different ways. Christians down through the ages have known such distresses, and they can identify with David. So far, we have trouble with this really serious part here. Where Christian may be seemingly alone, and there's no recourse, and there's long, extended periods of isolation. No matter the degrees of distress, can you understand what David is communicating here? Now, let me just throw out a bunch of questions just to help us stay here for a minute cuz this is this may be hard to think about. Did you expect David to say this? Do we take for granted our freedom to gather with believers to worship the one true God? Do we take advantage of the privilege that we have Do you really miss your church when you're traveling or sick or on call or deployed? If you have to move, and I've seen this happen so many times, if you have to move, do you make sure that you and your family will have a solid place to worship before you solidify your plans, if you have those options? Do we care for one another in such a way that we miss those who aren't with us today? Can our non Christian friends or family tell that we are committed to love to and love our family in the Lord? I've got to ask this when you have family or friends visiting you on the weekend, do you not come to worship because they're there? Do you realize what that communicates to the people that you love and care about? That they are more important than God Almighty who calls you to worship in the body of Christ on his day of worship. And if you think your family and friends do not get that message, you are sadly mistaken. It cuts off your witness right in the middle. Because they know that, hey, it's no big deal. You'll put them before the Lord. I grew up in a family where it wasn't a question. I mean, we didn't even ask this question. Every Sunday, that's where we were. And you're going, that's legalistic. No, it wasn't. (laughs) I'm sorry, it wasn't. There was no other option. It's his day. We're there. And that is a rare attitude more and more today. In other words, do your family and friends, those who know you best, know who we really and ultimately belong to? Do they know that you belong to the Lord by what you do? By what you worship? Do we miss gathering in the Lord's name? Do we miss it? When we can't. Lifting up his name together. Praying to him together. Singing to him together. Hearing his word together. Taking his supper together. Remembering his grace to us in Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord together. All you have to do is be alone so long that that doesn't happen before you find out how much you yearn for others the body of Christ that he has placed us in. There's one person that has said this continually over the years that I've been here who can't be here for job stuff. And I get I get messages sometimes and say, I'm so-and-so, I'm searching for his place, I'm somewhere else. I miss you guys. And when he's back, you know who I'm talking about already. When he's back, it's like, David ends this part of his declaration with verse 20. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth, away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like me. Remember that. That's easy to remember. David's calling himself a flea like me. Not important enough to even chase. Or one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Since I don't hunt, I had to ask what that meant. Partridges are fast, you can't catch them. That's all I'm going to say. Saul, he's saying. What is he saying? Saul, you're wasting your time. A flea represents something worthless. A partridge is something that can't be caught. You're wasting your time. God is not going to let you kill me. And I'm not going to... Be the one to bring you to your end. He is. Now, if Saul had any sense left, which is questionable, he'd be trembling in his boots or sandals. Then in verse 21 through 25, Saul responds, and again what he says, and what it all means should not really surprise us. Why? Because David's concluding remarks are also here, and what David asked in the last part of verse 24 makes clear where David's hope really lies. And a genuine faith holds the only genuine faith, hope, anyone can have. The rest of this stuff we hear on TV about hope, it's not hope. It's a desire that we think will happen, and if we don't see it happen, we're going to be really depressed. There's only one sure hope. And that's in the person of Jesus Christ. And Saul's response to David in verse 21, we've got to explain. Verse 21, Saul makes a confession. I have sinned. He issues an invitation. Return, David, return. He gives a promise, for I will do you no more harm. And there's a rationale for this. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day because I've acted foolishly and made a great mistake. And he says all this in one statement. David's reply in verse 22 is quick and it's short and let's be honest, it's sharp. Here's the spear, O king. Here is your spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. In other words, here's what David says to Saul. Well, that's great, Saul. But I think I've heard this before. Send a man to retrieve your spear. Would we be tempted to respond, oh, great, he's finally changed. I mean, you want that. But David doesn't go there. His hope is in God, not that Saul will change. And he knows him. How many times has Saul said this that's recorded? Many. So, we see that in verse 23 and 24, David then concludes this whole crazy episode by first summing up what he knows is true about the Lord, which explains why he left Saul alone and would not lay his hand on him. God anointed him. It's not my job to take him out. And then second, David asks something that shows where his heart really is, where his hope is. So first, David knows who the Lord is and that the Lord will deal with Saul, which is why he leaves Saul alone. David will not return to Saul. And his strong statement about the Lord indicates, and get this, David knows who he belongs to. He's not going back to Saul, which would indicate that he's putting his hope in Saul changing and that's how he's going to become king. In other words, what is he not doing? He's not maneuvering he's not counting his chips. He's not employing a strategy by human devices. It's really hard for some of us not to do that. Second then David then proceeds to cast himself and his future upon his only hope. Verse 24 Behold as your life was precious this day in my sight so may my life be precious in the sight of the lord and may he deliver me out of all my tribulation that is incredible notice that david does not hope that his life would now be highly esteemed in saul's eyes he's not saying, "law, well, saul, i saved your life, now be nice to me." In fact, this is the second time. There was more times but be nice Play nice. Saul not only knows David will succeed him as king of Israel, but now we see in verse 25 that the one who is rejected confers his blessing upon the man that he's been trying to kill. Now you talk about a weird place for encouragement to come from. It comes from Saul's own mouth here at the end. Since David places himself under the Lord's eyes and in the Lord's hands, in verse 25 really packs a punch as well. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. He did know. We've seen it before. This is the lucid part. He did know. Clearly, that David was God. So by what David did, was he getting glory for himself? Or was he pointing Saul back to the fact that you are under the Lord God Almighty. You have turned your back on the one who anointed you. You have not done what he has called you to do. You are accountable to him. Does that sound like a gospel to you? Yes. It's the first part of it. Saul not only knows David will succeed him as king of Israel, but now the one who rejected confers his blessing upon the man he's been trying to kill. What a change. So David, as we learn, now look at how it ends. Is this? You, would you write this differently? So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. This is the writer's, the Bible's way of saying that David and Saul will never see each other again. Ever. Where does your assurance come from? Does your assurance come from the fact that you know who God is, no matter how things are going, and he is so big and so great and has already proved his love to you by sending his son that you can trust him? That's where your assurance flows from. Do you value your being a part of a local church? I certainly hope so. We are knit together. If you belong to this church, then God has put you here. We didn't have a raffle out here and go, okay, you pick all the people you think are cool, and you pick all the people you think are cool, and we'll start a church you realize that so do you see what we're going a little taste of heaven because we're all different some of us don't have a clue what some of the rest of you are talking about when you talk about your jobs engineers of which mainly the men in this church are i have no clue most of the time what in the world you're saying but it's cool to listen i mean i love seeing engineers get excited that doesn't happen very much i'm sorry that was just a we are knit together even if we're really different and we are and some of us are a little strange <laughs> I'm and where's our hope where's our hope we are here to worship the lord god and call one another to placing our hope in him and not on circumstances places jobs families friends Life, whatever, it's in him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you for your word, your Old Testament that illustrates and brings into play stories that show real people going through the very same things that we struggle with every single minute of every day. Thank you for showing how faithful you are for how you fulfill your promise in Christ. For how you did deliver the Savior, the Messiah, who accomplished his work. And you were working this out through all history. Thank you that because you have done all this and been so faithful that we know the rest of what you say will happen, will happen. That he will return. That you will make all things right. That you will wipe our tears away. You will clear up all the issues that we can't understand now. That we will be able to spend Eternity with you in heaven. Oh Lord, thank you for this day. May we honor you this week humbly as we serve you, love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our benediction? Since it's been three weeks, I picked a longer one. Now may the God of peace